0: This morning we're going to pick up in verse 6 of chapter 4. And and what we see here is that Paul has been been moving in direct opposition to those who are offering heretical teaching. He's been moving in direct opposition to those who advance a gospel that at its base is really just contrary to those things recorded in the New Testament. And and so let me just read these verses for us and we'll begin to move through them together. Starting at verse 6, Paul writes, he says if you put these things before the brothers you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus being trained in the words of the faith and of good do- and of the good doctrine that you have followed have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths rather train yourself for godliness for while bodily training is of some value godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance for to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all, especially of those who believe, especially of those who believe. Now as we, as we turn this week, one of the things that you'll pick up on if, if you're studying carefully, you'll see that Paul really zeroes in on the person of Timothy this week. And so he turns and and speaks directly to him. He's offering words of encouragement, words of direction. But he turns and his focus is hard right on Timothy and on what he is supposed to do. And the first thing he says is, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. And so the question becomes in our mind, what are the things that he's supposed to put in front of them? And what does that look like? Well, you'll remember that last week we said that there were those who were seeking to distract the body, they were seeking to to add things to the gospel, add things that were requirements for them to do, things that they were to uphold if they wanted to be in right relationship with God. They primarily indicated two things. They said, look, you need to do a number of things, but let's just highlight two for you. You need to abstain from certain foods, and they forbade marriage. They said, don't eat that, that's going to mess up your relationship with God, and and really, singleness is the way to be. You don't want to be married. And that's, that's the, the crux of their teaching. And that's what they told them that they had to do if they wanted to attain to the next level in spirituality. And so Paul tells them, he says, look, you need to be characterized, Timothy. Your ministry needs to be characterized as one who puts these things before the brothers. But it's interesting, as we look at this, it's not just that Timothy's supposed to go in there and say, hey, look, there's some contrary teaching. Let me just tell you why this is bad let me intellectually give it to you, and then you back away and you make your own decision. And I'm just going to go over here to this group, and, and, and you're going to be fine in as much as you buy into the things that I gave you one time. You see the construction, the way that we see the language broken out. We see that Timothy is to go to the brothers, he's to go to those who understand themselves to be redeemed Christians, not just the men, but to everybody. And he is to say over and over again this is truth, this is false. This is the true gospel over here. This is what you need to believe in and what you need to find yourself working against is, are those things which are contrary, which work against the gospel. And then he's to go to them again and say, now I want to tell you one more time, these things are true, these things are false, believe these things, combat, work against these things over here. And then he's to find himself going in again and again and again saying, this is true, this is false, don't believe the false, believe the true. Let the true be what is evident and occurring, and you're dedicating yourselves to, and your life is founded around, and let the false be the things that you're not just not believing, but that you're actively working against. You see, Timothy wasn't to just go and to notionally put these things before the church, but he used to carry that over and over and over again. He's to put that before them so many times that they begin to recognize the importance of not just ignoring bad teaching, but of actively combating it, and of actively warring against those things which would lead to an impure faith. And it's interesting that Paul measures the worth of Tim- Timothy's ministry on his adherence to that. You notice the text says, if you do this, then you will be a good servant. He uses the word diakonos, the same word referred to the office of deacon. He said, if you will go and you will base your ministry on the word of God, if, if, if that's what you'll do, if you'll make that the primary importance, the primary impact of your ministry, if you'll continually put the Word of God out there, apply it to their lives, apply it to their problems, apply it to the times when they're sorrowful, apply it to the times when they've lost their jobs, apply it to the times when people are trying to lead them astray, if you will do that day in and day out, month in and month out, you will be a good servant of Christ. So i got to be honest, when I'm reading this this week and I'm studying these things and and I'm recognizing that Timothy has a unique position in the Ephesian church. That he is working with the overseers, he is working with the elders and the deacons, and he is going to them over and over again. He's saying, look, Paul has written to me and he said, this is the measure of my ministry. But just as it's a measure of mine, it is the measure of yours. And so he goes to all the leadership in the church. And all the servant leaders in the church, he says, the measure of our ministry, the proof as to whether or not we are faithful and recognized as good servants before Jesus, isn't how we greet people. Now, that, that's, that's a real shame because we had a great 10-point seminar on how to effectively greet people. You've got purel, you've got a firm handshake, right? And that's how we greet people well. But he goes to him and he says, look, it's got nothing to do with how you do these things, but the measure of whether or not you will be considered a good servant of Christ Jesus is your adherence to the Word of God. And so as you sit here today, the measure of whether or not you in, these, in this church are good servants of Jesus will depend on your adherence to the Word of God. Because we are all servants of Christ Jesus. We're not servants of Richcrest Baptist Church, but we are servants of our Lord in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. And so we see that Timothy is struggling, he is working hard to put these things into practice and apply these things to the people's lives. And then Paul couples it, and he says that you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. This is the picture Paul gives us. He goes back with another one of these these ideas where he is being trained in the word of faith. He finds himself repeatedly under the subjection of the word. It's not that Timothy gets the letter from Paul and he's got some photographic memory and he says, I've got this, let me stand before everybody and just wow them with rhetorical flourish. Let me impress them with my my oratorical panaz and and really just blow people away as I use all of these you know assonants, consonants, and all these other words that I've forgotten the meanings of. And all of these things as he stands before them and does this. Instead, he reminds Timothy, he says, Timothy, you are being trained. You are dedicating your life. And this is where Paul begins to enter into this idea and this metaphor of what training is. You know, any of you in here that are professionals will remember the time that you gave yourself to dedicated study, whether it be to learn a trade, you're a plumber, you're an electrician, you're a welder, you're a teacher. You're a mom, and you've grown up, and you've watched your children, and you realize this this method of discipline works really well. Rewarding with lots of candy, not, not so much. You know, you, as, as you've gone through, you've been trained in certain aspects of your life, but the word that he tells Timothy is to train yourself. You are being trained in the words of faith and the good doctrine that you've followed. He reminds Timothy that, Timothy, there was a time in the past, and for Timothy, this was his mother and his grandmother. You'll remember that his, his father was a nonbeliever. His father was a man who didn't follow Jesus. But he tells him, Timothy, do you remember when when your mother and your grandmother reached out to you and they shared the words of faith? They shared what it is to believe and to follow Jesus, and you bought into that, and it transformed your life, and it is still transforming your life. You have followed this good teaching. You have followed the Word of God, and it is producing in you a continual training that is having effects even today. It is having effects even today. But moving into verse 7, he offers Timothy an interesting distinction. Apparently, to contradict the things that are happening there in Ephesus, he tells him, he says, Timothy, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Now, your translation might say, have nothing to do with, with irreverent and old wives' tales, right? And so Paul uses this idea that Timothy, don't buy anything, don't buy into anything that is contrary to the gospel. And he's referencing specifically those things that, that he talked about in verses 1 through 5, primarily the forbidding of marriage and abstaining from certain foods. And this is how Paul characterizes them. He doesn't just say, look, they're not, they're not as valuable as other things. Maybe we just don't harp on that. Maybe that's you know, season two of what it is to be a Christian. That's, that's something we're going to hold off on, to me, Timothy, because that's not as palatable. Instead, he looks at that teaching and he characterizes it in just a ridiculous way. He says this teaching, that, that those people in Ephesus are trying to get the church to buy into, it's complete and utter godlessness. It's complete and utter godlessness. It's, it's worldliness. It's irreverent. It is opposed to God. And man, this should really make us think that as we evaluate those things that we hear prominent TV preachers or we see bumper stickers, or we get forwarded, you know, like a a thousand other people every day from our dear old great-great-aunt, twice removed. And she sends us these things, and it's got a flower somehow in the bottom right-hand corner, and you're reading through it, and you're like, this all sounds really good, but I don't think this accords with sound doctrine. This all sounds really good. I really like the way that that I can apply these truths, and this can be my truth, and I can speak these things into existence, and I can speak positive things into my life. But then we read Scripture and we say, whoa, 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 whoa. Who has spoken something into existence? God. Who, what did God do in, in creation? Did God speak creation into existence? Absolutely he did. Absolutely he did. So when we read these things where people suggest that you can speak positive things into your life, you want that parking spot, speak it into existence. You want that pay raise, speak it into existence. You want to have a better attitude, you declare that you're going to have that. You know what they're telling you? They're telling you that you can be God. They're telling you that you can enter into the way of God, that you can speak into reality just as God has, and you can affect change in your life you know who can affect change in your life? God. You know what you can do in your life? You can rely on God to bring about change. You lost your job. Your relationship's not great with your wife. She leaves you. You're a wife. Your husband's left you. Your children aren't aren't obeying. All of these things are moving in circles in ways that you can't control, that you can't bring back in. No amount of speaking good into these things is going to affect change in your life. The only thing that will affect change in your life is fully relying on God. Anything else is irreverent. Anything else is adherence to silly myths. Old wives' tales. Remember an old wives' tale that, that whether my mom actually told me this or not, I'm not really sure. But as a child, i heard her say something close to this, and as I grew up, I, I just, I swore it was true, was well, not to, not to, you're all looking at me like, this is going to be really awesome. It's, it's not going to be that, now, I wish I hadn't said it, but <laughs> she told me that you would get sick if while you're eating fish, you drank milk. And so I grew up with this understanding that that it would probably kill me. It would at least make me very sick if while I was eating fish I would drink milk. And so for me, that has always been the example of an old wives' tale. Now probably it's it's more like an old five-year-old's tale that he misheard his mom and he grew up for 20-plus years and and thought, man, I don't want to die. I love fried catfish, but I cannot, cannot. I'm thinking it's probably like a one- to two-hour window, just like swimming, where I eat fish and then I can drink milk. I've since overcome that and just found it to be disgusting, and so I try not to do it. But he tells them, he says, have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths. This isn't just a suggestion. This isn't just something he tells them would benefit him if he avoided it, but it is a command where he said, find things in this world and strictly abstain from them. They tell you to abstain from foods and from marriage, which God has declared is good. I'm telling you to abstain from those things which don't accord, which don't find themselves in Scripture have nothing to do with them. Now, he contrasts that. If you were to look at it in the Greek, you'd see one verb that says have nothing to do, and the next word in this deal is train yourself for godliness. Train yourself for godliness. You're to find yourself repeatedly giving yourself over and over and over again, daily, moment by moment, hour by hour, season in and season out, giving yourself to the pursuit of godliness. And You say, Matt, that sounds an awful lot like legalism, and man, I've got freedom in Christ, and so I'm just not about that, and so while I appreciate your, your kind encouragement, I just, I'm going to have to exercise a little freedom and not do that. You see, there's a big difference between legalism and discipline. Now, We like to to find those things which sound a lot like legalism and just say, man, that doesn't sound good, that doesn't sound comfortable. I'm just going to move that to this category because then I don't have to do it and my weekends and my mornings are free and I can watch whatever I want on television and I can go hunting on Sunday morning at the opening of dove season and I can do all of these things. But we remember that legalism is a move to merit the favor of God based upon what you do. Discipline is doing those things unto God because He loves you. You see, we dedicate ourselves to the study of His Word. We dedicate ourselves to prayer. We dedicate ourselves to fasting, to meditation, and we do these things not to get the love of God, but because we've already got it. And the right response before God is not just to know these things, not just to notionally have this idea of what it is to be a, a Christian, but to allow this knowledge to translate into action. That we would find ourselves training for godliness. And then Paul offers a comparison of sorts that is so contemporary to our day. Moving into verse 8, he says, For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. Now, the fitness industry, the health and fitness industry, is a multi-billion-dollar-a-year industry. And, and probably even more uh, financially secure than that is the industry that says, Look, we will sell you the pills so you don't have to go right? But it's this idea that, that, that I want to have just chiseled pecs in, in a ripped up six-pack, but I'm probably not going to get there because all the things that, that my doctor tells me I would have to get up, give up to get there, they're just I love them too much. I'm going to be quite honest, and I'm too cheap to buy the stuff on TV that doctor says will get me there with, with no sit-ups and no push-ups. But it's the idea that that so many people in our community, so many people in our country, and and likely people in our church find themselves training and sacrificing over and over and over again. They're training the body. So they wake up at 4 in the morning, they wake up at 5 in the morning, they're like me and they wake up closer to 6 to get there by 6.30, and, and they give themselves to an hour to hour and a half of their day so they can produce in themselves physical results. Now, this isn't to say that that physical fitness is of no value, that it is inherently sinful. Paul tells us right here that bodily training is of some value. But we find ourselves over and over and over again, and people in our community giving themselves to, that is the highest goal, to prevent aging, to prevent the effects of aging, to do something to transform this shell into an awesome piece of Adonis-like quality, right? Right? It's, it's just probably not going to happen. I've resided my fact that this is not going to happen. This is not a reality for me. But we find people that this is the thing that they've set as the highest goal. This is the thing that they have dedicated themselves to. Now You might sit here and say, hey, look, I have never been a fitness freak. I've never dedicated myself to that. But you look at your job. You look at the hours that you pour into advancing in your career. You look at your hobbies. You look at the hours you spend sitting in a duck blind... Uh, you know, decopaging or whatever it is that you do. And I don't have very many hobbies, and so you'll forgive me if I don't name your hobby. But you find yourself pursuing these things because you enjoy it, because you want to get better at it. You sacrifice church attendance, you sacrifice scripture memory, you sacrifice time in prayer, you sacrifice fasting, you sacrifice anything and everything for the achievement of your goal. And Paul looks at that and he says that while dedicating ourselves to these things is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. And this is why. This is why he can say that. Because godliness holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Paul looks at it and says, look, we recognize that that physical training is of some value. It makes your heart beat stronger. You can can run faster, throw harder. When you're 34, those things aren't as important anymore. But you can do all these things. There is some value in discipline. But godliness is of value in every way because it has value not only for today but for all of eternity. It has value not only for today, but for all eternity. As we find ourselves given to the study of God's Word, we find our lives being transformed into those things which are godlike, which are godly in character. As we find ourselves studying God's Word, memorizing His Word, fasting and feasting and nourishing ourselves and training ourselves for godliness, not just knowledge but action, we find ourselves responding in the right way. You go to work, your boss is just an absolute jerk, you can't stand him, he can't stand you, he comes in and yells at you. Because you are training yourself in godliness, you are able to respond in a God-honoring way. You find yourself training in godliness, you're waking up in the morning to study and to pray and to give yourself to the private worship of God. You find yourself in a bad situation, you have a tire blowout, it's 105 degrees outside. Instead of uttering something that you can't call back, you recognize that God is training you for holiness, that this situation is designed for your sanctification, and you respond in a radically different way. Somebody maligns you, somebody says something about you that's completely, utterly false, has no bearing in reality. Instead of responding and trying to dig up something that you can equally turn back on them because you find yourself given to the study and the pursuit of godliness, you abandon that pursuit. You pray for them, you mourn for them, you weep for them, and you find yourself responding in a radically different way. See, godliness in its pursuit has value not just for today, but godliness has value for, all, for the life to come. And this promise of godliness results from the work of, of salvation that God does in our hearts at the, accept, at the acceptance of salvation at the hand of Christ in his shed blood. And this is what Paul says about this. He offers us yet another one of these programmatic statements in verse 9. He says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. He's making the commentary that this idea that godliness is of supreme value, that it's so much better than physical training, It's something that we should all apply to our lives. It's not enough to notionally know this. It's not enough to merely accept this. It's only enough if you dedicatingly apply this. As you think about the way you spend your time, as you think about the way that you spend your money, tick down through and do a quick self-evaluation. Do your hobbies. Do the way that you spend your free time does your opinion on on church attendance and on Bible study, does it reflect a selfish pursuit or the pursuit of godliness? I tell you, that is a difficult assessment for us to make because too often we find ourselves destroyed by the results. Too often we find ourselves living lives that aren't God-honoring, but they've got a great veneer They've got a fantastic veneer that when somebody says, well, what did you do this week? You're like, man, Wednesday night I went to Bible study. Sunday morning I was in church. I'm helping out in this group. I'm doing that group. I met somebody the other day, and I, and I, and I prayed for them. And they're like, man, you're, like, you're a super Christian. Are you, are you on staff somewhere? And you're like, no, but I do attend Sunday school. And it's this idea that, that they begin to describe, you know, four or five activities in their life and in the course of their week, and you're, just, you're like, oh, my goodness. I'm in the presence of... Of, you know, not greatness, but, but certainly very goodness. And then you begin to ask the person, what did you do Tuesday morning? They're like, well, I slept in. I was prepping up for that Wednesday night Bible study. Well, What did you do, you know, Wednesday morning? Well, you know, I, I got up about 4.30 to go work out. And you, you find over and over again that the people spend the majority of their time not studying the Word of God, but doing those things which they derive immediate pleasure from. So, I mean, you can check your life. You can check your schedule. If you want to really... Have a litmus test to see your pursuit of godliness. If you're training yourself in the pursuit of godliness, go to your day timer, go to your calendar on your iPhone, and write and record the time that you spend studying the Word of God. Write and record those times you spend studying Scripture, memorizing Scripture. Write and record those times you spend telling other people about Jesus. You get to the end of your week, you will weep. You get to the end of your week and you'll be broken and destroyed because you'll realize that those three or four activities that you found yourself lauding and praising at someone else, they're starving to death because they're not giving themselves to the pursuit. They're not nourishing themselves on the Word of God, on the Word of faith and good teaching. We need to get real about the pursuit of godliness. We need to get real about the pursuit of godliness and the desire to be transformed into his likeness instead of just being uplifted by this brief encounter with god paul says that in verse 10 he says for to this end we toil and strive for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living god who is the savior of all people especially those who believe. Now Paul doesn't say, no, to this end we attend church, to this end we come to Wednesday nights, to this end we help out in Iwanis. to this end we go to a Tuesday morning community Bible study. He says, to this end we toil and strive. He's painting this picture that we dedicate ourselves, that we find ourselves engaged in difficult labor. Now, For anyone that's had a job that that is difficult, this isn't something that you remember fondly or you remember fondly enough that you want to do every day, right? But this is the descriptor that Paul uses for this. He says we toil. We give ourselves to difficult work. We give ourselves to over and over again sweating, to working it out, to training daily moment by moment, hour by hour, we strive. We recognize that in the pursuit of godliness that we're going to come across difficulties. We're going to come across obstructions in our own schedule. We're going to come across difficulties in our family schedule and our work schedule. And this is where you have to make the decision. Will I give myself to the training of godliness? Or will I just give myself to the easy pursuit of satisfaction. You see, the easy pursuit of satisfaction says that all you have to be able to do is is spend a little bit of time with God. Maybe pray for 30, 45 seconds every morning over every meal. And that's really enough, because for you it's more of of a heart reflection and a heart matter. I'm praying internally all day long. But this idea of toiling and striving... Man, that arrests us. When I look at this and I think, man, toiling and striving. You see, I, I spend a lot of time sitting and reading, and it makes me think maybe when I'm reading and, and, and doing these things and giving myself to, self to the careful study of God's Word, I need to bring a treadmill in so I can get some type of sweat going, get my heart rate really up and going while I'm studying the Word of God. It's this idea that as we find ourselves in the difficult study of the Word of God, see our lives transformed. We see the way we respond to our spouses transformed. Our children transformed. Our neighbors transformed. And especially that crabby neighbor that lives at the end of the block. You know what I'm talking about. That we find ourselves living out our faith, not just holding it notionally. Because when you stand before God on Judgment Day, He is not going to be impressed with your perfect record of Sunday morning attendance. He's not going to be impressed with your work in Sunday school. He's not going to be impressed with any of these things. But he's going to to really hammer us hard on our wholesale pursuit of godliness. He's going to say, I gave my word to you. I called you into relationship with me. I saved you from darkness. I ushered you into the kingdom of light. And how did you respond to the favor of God in your life? Did you look at it and say, God, that just smacks too much of legalism and I am free in your son? Or did you dedicate yourself to discipline? Did you dedicate yourself to godliness because of the great work of salvation that he has done in you? Because to do anything short of that is to look at the sacrifice of Jesus, to cheapen the grace that he offers, to cheapen the forgiveness that he extends. God offers us grace, and that grace should produce in us right action and right response. Paul says, For to this end we toil and strive. For what reason? Because we have a hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, and he said, Lest you think that there is something special about you that there's not about the other people. See, Paul had already written them and said that that these others seek to pull you away from the gospel. They seek to, to... distract you from from the true gospel. They want you to add stuff on top of it and that will destroy your faith. But lest you think that the sacrifice of Christ wasn't intended for them to, lest you think that the sacrifice of Christ was only meant for you and your friends and those few you gather in Bible study with, we have set our hope on the living God. We have set our hope on the living God and He is the Savior of all people. He's the Savior of all. Paul wants them to understand that they're not working to satisfy a God who is dead. They're not working to satisfy an idea, but they are working at the pleasure of a living God. They're working to satisfy and to bring pleasure to a God who lives, who breathes, who gives to them life, who sustains in them life. And this God who does these things is the one who is Savior. See, in some ways, Paul is, is also speaking into their culture. See, in the Ephesian culture, you can find inscriptions where they speak of somebody who was just a real pillar of the community. This person had given money to different community service projects. They built roads, built houses, constructed aqueducts, done things to improve the community. And the inscription would say, to Maximus whatever. Whatever. God and Savior of the people of Ephesus. Because what they saw was someone that would bring about positive effects in their lives. The pagans in Ephesus, what they would see is this person had saved them. They had transferred them from suffering. But this person was dead. This person wasn't coming back and in not too many years. The effects of their goodness, the effects of their graciousness and generosity would be no more just as the Roman Empire is no more. Paul writes them. And he says, we don't worship a God that is dead. We don't worship a God with whom the effects of salvation are deteriorating and not long-lasting, but we worship a God who is living. We worship a God who upholds salvation as such. We worship a God who holds our salvation firmly And He is the Savior of all people. This produces in the Ephesians an understanding that they need to continually work with those who are outside of the faith. That although salvation is extended to all, Paul reminds them that not all have salvation. He's not describing a universalistic faith, but he's describing a particularized faith which resides in the redeemed. So when we think about our families, we think about our brothers and sisters and children that don't know Jesus, we don't puff ourselves up and think some primal thoughts because God has saved us. It causes, causes in us a deep sorrow that there are those around us who are not saved. We realize that as we are training ourselves from godliness is that we are casting off those things which encumber our training, those things which restrict our ability to train well that we're not primarily training so that we can be built up into pillars of the faith, but we're giving ourselves to toiling and striving and working hard to produce in us godliness so that we might bring others into the kingdom of God so that we might share the gospel with others, so that godliness might be evident in our lives, so that as Peter reads it, that those around you, when they see you persecuted, might rejoice, so that those who see us going through difficulties in life might recognize the power of God moving in our lives, and it draw them to ask a question and give you an opportunity to share the gospel. What is godliness doing in your life today? how do you find yourself moving and responding to God and training for godliness? Let me pray for us.